Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, and same to you. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 62nd episode of The Goods, a film podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing, actually, a Thanksgiving-themed movie. So we're recording this just a few days after Thanksgiving. I started watching the movie that we're going to be discussing today on Thanksgiving, took me a couple nights to finish it because I only watched in about a half hour spurt at a time, but it definitely felt Thanksgiving-ish to me, and yeah, it was interesting. It's a 2015 TV movie called Turkey Hollow, or stylized sometimes as Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow, and this was a TV movie that aired on Lifetime in 2015, so around Thanksgiving 2015. Brian, had you ever heard of this movie prior to this past week when I suggested it? No, I'd never even heard of it. And that's somewhat remarkable because I am a pretty big Muppets fan. I read the Muppets wiki in my spare time. And of course, Jim Henson was the creator of the Muppets. I guess this was a idea that he had in a notebook or something that got you know some small amount of development back when he was alive but this is a 2015 film jim henson died in 1990 the year i was born so he hadn't had his hands on it for a while let's just say yeah and and when he did die the muppets of course went to disney but the Jim Henson Company retained the rights to some non-Muppet odds and ends. Uh, Maybe the most prominent properties are the movies Labyrinth and Dark Crystal that he made in the 80s. They've done a few other things over the years. They made a movie at one point called Mirror Mask that looks pretty interesting. Yeah, I did some reading on them um, as we watched this. They've done a decent amount of TV shows and miniseries. Um, Over the past few years, even certainly the past 10 years, it seems like their big business is doing these uh, TV shows, but there haven't been too many movies that they've done. One, though, of note is they had a spinoff label called Henson Alternative, which released exactly one movie. And I believe a couple of TV shows. So Henson Alternative is like the R-rated branch. Oh, that, of course, would be the Happy Time Murders, right? That's right. The 2018 huge flop Happy Time Murders, a R-rated sort of riff on noir, but like very raunchy starring, I think, Melissa McCarthy. Uh, I didn't see it. It didn't look very appealing to me. But did you catch that one? (laughs) I haven't seen that one either, although I believe that that was an idea that had been brewing for a while, too. Yeah, and I think that one was directed by Jim Henson's son, Brian Henson. Yeah, Brian Henson is a cool guy. He was involved with various Muppet projects growing up. For instance, he voices Hoggle in Labyrinth, the like goblin guy. Okay. Well, I guess not a goblin. There are many goblins. He's like a dwarf or something. But also, 
a TV show that I enjoy that Henson worked on late in his life was called The Storyteller, and it featured Elephant Man actor John Hurt as a narrator who would tell some more obscure folk tales in the Brothers Grimm vein, and he had a puppet dog who he would talk to, and the dog was Brian Henson. Oh, nice. Keep it in the family. I know that Jim Henson's wife, Jane Henson, was also involved. And I know I'm pretty sure I often mispronounce this name as Hansen instead of Henson. I've probably done it three times already. And we'll probably do it three times more before the episode's done. So I apologize for that. But Jane Henson, I think, also was involved in the, the company business. But just real briefly, uh, before we pivot to the the movie at hand. Um, I know, Brian, you'd probably like to pick a Jim Henson project proper at some point. Would you mind giving us maybe a 30 second overview of your connection and your appreciation of Jim Henson? It's something you've written about a lot on our blog, earnthis.net over the years. And I'd kind of like to hear a summary. What What's your relationship with Jim Henson and his various creations? Mm-hmm. I should have written some more notes for this, but uh, the brief version I guess, is really early on, I watched a movie called Labyrinth, which I think is from uh, 1986, I believe. And this was a collab that Henson did with a fantasy illustrator named Brian Frude. It has David Bowie as a Goblin King. And it's hard to explain, but there is a lot of cool stuff. If you've never seen it, I, I definitely recommend it. It's like a storybook come to life. I think I also had a, like, best of songs from The Muppet Show compilation on a VHS with some of the music videos from the TV series from the 70s. I just have a lot of respect for Jim Henson. I, I think he was a a sui generis creator, and he just had a million ideas and, you know, grew his brand and died too early. I think he was only 53 when he died in 1990, and he had a lot of things cooking up to the day that he died. Oh, wow. I didn't know he was so young when he died. When he died, he had a funeral that had a lot of his longtime collaborators be a part of it. And that's something that I've seen. It's very moving, and it's something you've referenced too. just kind of this culminating thing reflecting on a creative life cut too short. Right. So he assembled this team of Muppeteer apostles who all outlived him and kept making Muppet projects after he was gone. In 2014, I wrote a series of articles on our blog called 10 Things Brian Likes. And the last chapter of the 10 was dedicated to tearjerker Muppet moments. I don't think we got any of those in this movie. No, not exactly the tone of what this movie's going for. It's more of a straightforward family fantasy. So I think it would be compelling at some point to maybe dig a little deeper into Jim Henson and his, his various creations on the show at some point. But I think now is a good time. We can maybe pivot and uh, start talking about Turkey hollow, unless there was anything else you wanted to add here. Well, we'll muse on this at the end too, but I, think it's interesting when there are cases of authors who you know are always jotting down ideas in sketchbooks and things and just have an abundance of concepts that are maybe not intended to go anywhere but the stuff they do put out proves bankable and and they have an estate that's continuing to make money and so somebody makes a decision oh here's a thing sitting in a notebook let's make this a movie 
there was some of that with um dr seuss like daisy head Maisie, hooray for diff and do for day i'm sure walt disney had things cooking when he went he was still pretty young i mean disney world for instance right and uh, i also wonder like who else is going to join that crew where they've got estate handlers continuing to churn stuff out i think stephen king is definitely going to be one i'm sure he's got just desks full of blurbs oh man that's an interesting thought exercise who's a prominent creator now i feel like jk rowling could be in there too yeah i think you're right that's interesting i'm gonna definitely think a little bit more about that because that is a very who, who are the creators now who are sufficiently productive in ideas but aren't actually spitting out all of their output but have such ravenous fan bases that as you said, the estate handlers would find a way to get those nuggets of ideas created. Because that's definitely what this is. It's <laughs> This is like when Tupac died in the early 90s, and then in 2005, he released his fourth posthumous album. That's the equivalent of what this movie is to Jim Henson. So that's why in my notes, I have Jim Henson's in parentheses before the title <laughs> Turkey Hollow. Yeah, they could, even though the poster has a pretty prominent. It would be just as Thanksgiving appropriate if they called it Jim Henson's Leftovers. <laughs> I like that. So this movie was directed by someone named Kirk R. Thatcher, who I had never heard of prior to this past week, although perhaps I should have heard of him because he directed something I saw in the last two months. He directed the new Muppet Haunted Mansion special that dropped on Disney Plus uh, that I watched and I thought was fine. I had a decent time watching. I don't think it is going to enhance the Muppet legacy in any significant way, but I had a good time for an hour. Did you catch up with that one? I did watch that one. Yeah, it was okay. Not one of the more memorable Muppet entries, but it was all right. It had Darren Chris. Yeah. I'm a Darren Chris fan. Uh, he just released a Christmas album called A Very Darren Christmas, oh. uh, which I think I'm going to go pick that up. <laughs> nice. Um, and I see you also wrote down that Thatcher directed Muppets Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. my, my story about that one is it's one of the last movies we rented from Blockbuster back in like 2004. And we only watched the first half because then the DVD was damaged and we we couldn't watch the rest. So I don't know how it ends. <laughs> You've only seen half of it. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of funny. And then the last thing of note that he's directed that I saw is this real viral video from maybe 10 years ago of the Muppets singing Bohemian Rhapsody and reenacting parts of that music video. That's honestly probably left as much of an impact on me as anything else he's done. So Yeah, I mean, that went super viral. So Right. I remember that. The cast of this film, there's two names that you've ever heard of here. And when I say you, I mean collectively you, the audience. It's possible you could have heard of one or two of these others. But one of them is the narrator is the rapper and entertainment personality Ludacris. And I, I just always laugh when I see Ludacris in anything mainstream family oriented, because when I was in high school, he was known as like one of the filthiest rappers there was <laughs> just always going on about sexual acts and deviant things. And now he's like a smiling face telling a kid's story. It's just very funny for me. I like that. He, he's pretty charming here. Then the other name of note is Mary Steenburgen, who's come up on this podcast a couple of times. She's the mom in Step Brothers and also the mom in Elf. 
And was there anything else that we had talked about her being in? I can't remember. I don't know specifically, but she's Doc Brown's love interest in Back to the Future 3. She's H.G. Wells's love interest in one of my dad's favorite time travel movies, uh, which is, I think, called Time After Time. So she pops up from time to time. Nice, yeah. Here she plays a woman named Cly. So she's the great aunt of the kind of two protagonist children and the person they're going to visit in this Thanksgiving film. So I watched this movie on Thanksgiving, like it sounds like you started it on Thanksgiving, and I watched it with my family, and my dad, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, said, what is Cly short for? <laughs> that's a good question. My best guess is Clytemnestra. Wow, that's dramatic. She was the wife of Agamemnon. So my thought was Clementine. Like, oh, my darling Clementine. She's kind of like a, not a hick, really, but she's someone who's kind of out there. And I think of Clementine as a kind of out there name. I mean, I guess you'd probably go by Clem, but I feel like you can just add a Y onto things. And that's typically safe for nicknames. Sure. And then the two stars, the two protagonists are, I'm going to try to pronounce these, Graham Vershear as Timmy. We could talk about where he falls on the Jansen scale. How many Jansons is he at? And then we have uh, Genevieve Buchner as Annie. I have no idea if I pronounced those names correctly, but uh, Annie's kind of the teenage older sister. So, And at several points, it was really clear to me that these kids and a lot of the actors in the film were Canadian because the, the boy, Tim, says sorry at one point, which is a Canadian giveaway. Yeah, he, he was the only one I noticed it for, but as I was clicking through the names of the actors and actresses, I did notice that several of them said the Canadian blank. So Canadian actress, Canadian actor. So I think you're probably right about that. But I've been listening for the sorry. That was the one you told me about when we were talking about Care Bears uh, several months ago. I've been listening for that ever since I've been watching movies since then. So mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's other things like if it was a really extreme one, you might hear a boot or things like that. Mm, yeah. Like I've heard uh, Alex Trebek, R.I.P., say sorry and things like that. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to hop into the plot now of Turkey Hollow. So this movie opens with Ludacris, again, the narrator here, telling us about the mysterious, quote, Turkey capital of the world, a little town called Turkey Hollow in some unspecified portion of the Pacific Northwest. There's just a lot of things that were popping into my head here in the opening two minutes of this film. And here's a couple of things. One is the opening credits are like built-in default Windows font or, or something like that. It was a font I've, I've seen. I've used myself in Microsoft Word before. Yeah, it's kind of papyrusy. Right. And so I was thinking, what dire level of budget are we in that this is the font that's being used in the opening credits? When I brought that up on chat, you got a little defensive about the fonts, Brian. Do you have any particular thoughts on uh, on cheap standard fonts? Well, it's mostly just I've heard from people just griping about fonts. Oh, this is a bad font. And those people tend to be, I don't know, prissy. It's like, who gets to decide? If the meaning is conveyed, it serves its purpose. I think the artist has a free hand in what font they get to pick. And sure, you get to criticize it, but I don't think there's an objective judgment to be made. Uh, it does make it look cheap, sure, but 
think if I were making a movie, I would not uh, ignore it in my tool bag necessarily. I think that's fair. To me, the flip side of that is if people are noticing your font, then it's probably a problem. Like you should at least choose something that people aren't noticing. Although I'm, I pulled up the video and I'm clicking through it now. And it could be that it just looks a lot like papyrus and isn't in fact papyrus is in fact something more unique and just happened to evoke trauma of past papyrus incidents. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't know. Certainly papyrus is one I've heard ire leveled against mm -hmm. like the avatar poster and stuff. Yeah. I think papyrus is up there in comic sans territory in terms of the, the spite it generates. Another thought I had here is as we kind of get this, opening couple of minutes narration here. Uh, so we learned that Annie and Timmy, it, Annie is maybe, I don't know exactly how old she is, but she's the actress was like 25 or something when this was made. And she seems like she's 16 or 17 or something like that. She's on her cell phone complaining about bad signal and stuff. Whereas Timmy is more of like a 10 year old or 12 year old or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Annie is just always complaining. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I, I actually kind of liked her more than some of the other actors here. Like, I felt like she at least inhabited the character some, even if the character was default teenage stereotype. Sure. I mean, Tim is just super wooden. Yeah. Yeah. Not my favorite. And we learned that the dad recently divorced. So they're driving to go spend Thanksgiving with their great aunt, Cly. That's the Mary Steenburgen character. I mean, of course, in my head, I'm thinking Gravity Falls connections. We got a brother and a sister traveling to the Pacific Northwest. Granted, they're going with their father and not kind of on their own. And they're going to see a somewhat distant relative, a great aunt versus a great uncle. So I thought that was an interesting connection. That was one of the reasons that I thought it might be fun for both of us to, to watch and talk about. Yeah, I definitely saw some of those parallels. It, and it gets heightened from there because after this scene, we learn that this region of the kind of foresty area that they're going to is known for a cryptid, a mythological Bigfoot-esque creature called the Howling Hoodoo. And they even go to a little tourist trap of them, people pawning off masks and shirts and uh so they call it hoodoo doodoo or something like that like little pellets that are supposed to be hoodoo poop and this also was making me think of um gravity falls and your your gauntly episode when you went and visited some of those places yeah definitely to be fair i mean the region really is like that there's all kinds of paranormal tourist traps right so one thing we learn here is that great aunt cly her deceased husband claimed to have met the hoodoo and so therefore it's kind of a sore spot for great aunt cly and the kids should not bring it up at, at thanksgiving dinner i kept wanting to know what the uncle died of like it's not even a hundred percent clear that he is dead until like halfway through the movie but they don't talk about what happened i guess he just got old but yeah, unclear when he's a monster hunter. Yeah. Right. And I, I also noticed that they were kind of vague about the dead thing. They said, he's gone. He's not around here anymore. Yeah. And definitely felt like dead, but they were also avoiding it. So part of me wondered if it was going to be a twist. Oh, well, he disappeared in the woods. And then we see him in the woods 
But spoiler, it does not go that route here. Yeah, I was expecting the same thing, but then they start abruptly talking to his ghost, and it's like, oh, I I guess he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so we meet Aunt Clyde, her she she owns a farm, but it's not it's a turkey rescue sanctuary. It's not a turkey growing farm for the purposes of selling them for Thanksgiving dinners. And Aunt Clyde is again Mary Steenberg, and her her distinctive look here is she has a white stripe in her hair, a skunk stripe, as you called it in the zombies episode, when the werewolf characters in the the Disney Channel movie Zombies, or I guess it was Zombies 2, had like these white stripes in their hair. I was like, oh, it's another TV movie with that visual cue. And one thing of note about Aunt Cly is like, we learn from the first two or three sentences that she is very vegan and very uh, aggressive about being vegan. Like it's part of her whole thing about having a turkey sanctuary. And she's also not just that, but she's like a full on crunchy hippie who only drinks tea and believes in tree spirits and stuff. One thing that I I was trying to trace as this movie went along is whether this movie was pro-vegan or anti-vegan or whether it was mixed. And I think the answer is it's kind of mixed. Like the the farmer, turkey farmer proxy guy here is the villain and he's like pumping the meat full of steroids and it's gross. And they all end up having a spoiler here, happily ever after Thanksgiving meal around a vegan Thanksgiving dinner. But then again, Aunt Cly is also portrayed as really kooky and just kind of out there. I, I don't know if you had any take on that, Brian. Yeah, I mean, it's like every little thing she just has a hippy dippy saying to go with and that she like doesn't have a tv and doesn't have the internet so she's off the grid which i can respect but she's like this is the way everybody ought to be don't harm mother earth and they didn't do a whole lot to make her super likable or her viewpoint super empathetic necessarily except that it's opposed to the good old boy turkey, what do they call it when they uh, juice with steroids? T- turkey juicer. Yeah, he's kind of the profits only business mogul type guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it doesn't help her likability that Mary Steenbergen is here collecting a paycheck. And I don't think she's doing much other than collecting a paycheck in this performance here. Yeah, she's like the star power for the movie, but she's definitely phoning it in. I shared that reaction as well. Uh, as you mentioned, her house is off the grid, so there's no internet, TV, or cell reception, which frustrates in particular Annie. And, you know, her arc here is going to be, among other things, to learn to put the device down and connect with your family a little bit more. That's, that's her kind of thing. But Timmy, the boy, he goes exploring around Clyde's house and he finds some weird old stuff. I can't remember if it's a basement or like some corner bedroom or something like that. I think it's the basement, but in this kind of dusty old room, finds some weird stuff. So one is he finds an old notebook with all these weird jotted thoughts on mythological creatures from the great uncle whose name I think is Ned. I think they mention his name, but the the passed away husband of, of great aunt Cly. This was another Gravity Falls connection for me because of course, 
Dipper finds a notebook in the first episode, and we know Grunkle Stan also has a notebook, and it's got all this information about the wild creatures here. So that was that was another thing that brought me back to Gravity Falls. Yes, definitely, absolutely. <laughs> Is that something they say in? Yeah, in the uh, in the pilot episode. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and it just, this scene just made me wish I liked this actor better because <laughs> it's like. I kind of like the set design here. All the monster hunter crap that the uncle accumulated. Like, there's this weird instrument thing that he made. And it's it's also like a gun. It's like a combination of a gun and a trombone. Yeah, they said the name of it at one point and it was good. And I think I might have it somewhere in my notes down here. It's something like a gibberator or something. Yes, I think that's it. I think it's a gibberator. It's something along those lines, though. It's a cool thing because it looks sort of like a gun, but it's got like a keytar where you would expect a trigger to be and like the thing where you load the rifle bullets and stuff. And I, I like that, too. The other thing they find down there is a newspaper article. And this newspaper article, it's from like some National Enquirer thing. It's like a cutout clipping for who knows how old. And it says you can get ten thousand dollars if you find a picture of the howling hoodoo and send it into this national Enquirer type tabloid after dinner and dessert that night one line that i liked is every time they talk about a meal in this movie aunt cly says something along the lines of hope you like beets or i'm making beets i have a lot of beet related anecdotes uh, one is in the simpsons just it's this one random scene that plays on my head Whenever Katie comes back from the grocery store is Marge walks in the door with Lisa. I think they'd been grocery shopping and Marge says, we're back. And Lisa says, we got beets. And I don't know. It's just like one of those one stupid things they have in Simpsons that always make me laugh. Why was Lisa excited about getting beets, excited enough to announce it, even though it had no bearing on what was to commence in that Simpsons plot? Yeah, for some reason, beets are a common punchline. People seem not to like beets. I love beets. <laughs> I, beets are great, man. There's a whole subplot of The Office where Dwight, like one of the things that makes him weird is he grows beets. Beets are something I've really come around on in my adulthood. I did not like them when I was a teen. I thought they tasted too bitter. But now I really like the blend of like the earthiness, which is slightly bitter, and the sweetness. And you can put them on salads. You can put them on sandwiches. You can roast them. I'm pro beet. Yeah, I've always loved beets, especially pickled beets. But Mm. even the regular kind at the salad bar are good, too. Yeah, yeah. And this is buzzed on beets. (laughs) Beets on movies, something like that. Yeah. Yes. And sometime shortly after that dinner, Annie walks in on the dad. So the dad's name is Ron. Uh, and Ron's on a phone call and he's basically admitting to his one of his office mates that he came to Turkey Hollow so that he could have basically Cly keep an eye on the kids while he worked to get back some money that he lost in the divorce. And <laughs> this whole thing is like played as him being a terrible father, like he's committed some sort of bad parenting or betrayal. Like, I don't even like, what would you expect him to do? He doesn't have money. He, he's, his solution was, hey, let's go spend time with family for the holiday. I'll work on the off hours and you could spend time with your great aunt. That's is a great parenting decision. He's doing what I think is a, a, 
divorced dad should do. Yeah. Like, I don't know why this is viewed as like a parenting malfeasance here. Yeah, Annie just does not shut up about this <laughs> and how terrible it is and that he would talk about it so cavalierly so that they can hear. And it's like, I don't understand what's wrong with this. The man's got a job. It helps he, everyone. He's got to pay your cell phone bill, which is cell phone that you're so desperate to start using again. And then to, to play up how like annoying these kids are. So first of all, Annie's complaining about this. And then Timmy comes in and says, Dad, do you want to read the dictionary with me? Which is like the most boring act. Like if you were trying to come up with ideas for what's an activity that sounds really boring. Do you want to read the dictionary with me? Would be right up there. But it's because he's trying to find some word in that notebook. But I, this was a moment of, I think, unintentional comedy. I don't think they meant for this to be funny how awful the kids were in this moment. But I, I was laughing. As another Henson reference, reading the dictionary for fun is the sort of thing that Bert would do. And he's hyperbolically boring. Yes. <laughs> After they go to sleep that night, Timmy is is unable to sleep and he gets out of bed, goes outside, and he starts exploring these woods around where they've come to visit. He's following strange noises he hears, and he notices that these strange noises match some of the seeming nonsense words that were written in the notebook. But as he's wandering around, his flashlight dies, and he starts to get spooked. He, like, opens a fence and runs in it, and all these turkeys come rushing towards him and go rushing out the gate. And it turns out he's accidentally let loose a huge batch of turkeys. This is where we meet the villain. These turkeys are owned by a turkey farmer with the excellent name of Eldridge Sump. And Eldridge Sump has two minions. One of them's named Junior. So I was trying to decide, are they both his sons? I'm not sure. Did you get a read on that, Brian? Yeah, I couldn't tell. I mean, they might as well be, but they're just mangy farmhand guys. Right. A couple things here. One, these are real turkeys. Uh, I'm kind of surprised they're real turkeys because we're in a Muppet production. I was kind of expecting puppets and also just the low budget. But there's like literally dozens of real ass turkeys on film. You don't we don't do real animals in movies too often anymore. No. And yeah, they had quite a few of them. They they say that 175 turkeys go missing and my mom chimed in at this point and said, that's not 175 turkeys. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't think you can be that confident. It, it looked like a lot. You know, maybe it wasn't a full 175, but they had quite a few. Yeah, it's dozens, I think. Uh, so this character, Eldridge Sump, is played by Lyndon Banks. Uh, it's an actor I was not previously familiar with, but I clicked through his filmography beyond this. And it seems he always plays villains in TV movies. And he's the perfect TV movie villain. He's got a very gaunt and pointed face. He's got great line deliveries. I think he was my favorite actor here, or at least my favorite performance here. Uh, him being the grumpy farmer. He's he's like Dickensian. Right, right. I could see him playing yeah, a character in a Dickens adaptation. He's got the same like dramatic evil to his look. And they like put bags under his eyes and stuff. So, I, And his name is Eldridge Sump, which is a mouthful, but it's still a good name. So when this farmer Sump catches Timmy, uh, he reports him to the police. And so here's where we meet the sheriff character. 
So the sheriff character was kind of odd to me because his whole thing is he's very into Aunt Cly. I thought he seemed younger than her, but it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, I don't know how old Mary Steenburgen's character is supposed to be here, but the way that he kind of expresses this is he keeps having these like really awkward Freudian slips about how sexy and beautiful Aunt Cly is. Um, kind of funny. Yeah, I was I was chuckling. Although, yeah, it was a little more ribald than you might expect from a Hanson project. I don't know. She says something like, wow, I've really drawn myself a bath of trouble. And he's like, well, if it was up to me, I'd be right in that bath there with you. And this dude, to me, looks a little bit like Danny Glover. He, he wasn't Danny Glover, but... No, it was not Danny Glover. It does look kind of like him, though. And just to give a picture of it, that he's an older older guy so maybe not as old as mary steenbergen but he's got some gray some sear locks <laughs> one thing we learned from this sheriff i don't know if there are any places that actually have laws like this but he says there's a, a law in the town where if you or your family cause the loss of another farmer's animals that farmer gets to take your farm unless you pay for the things that were lost so like here are the stakes for the film. We need to find some way to pay back the loss of Turkey so that Clyde does not lose her farm. And they do this kind of math on the fly. And hey, it turns out it's almost exactly $10,000 that they need in two days to save Clyde's farm. Hmm, have we heard $10,000 anywhere previously in this film? Well, that was the amount in the picture for the tabloid newspaper ad saying $10,000 for a picture of the howling hoodoo. And so I was wondering if there's any, have you heard of any law like this before, Brian? <laughs> was this movie logic here? I think so. It's like, if you take the deed, you own the house. Right. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I mean, in some ways it makes sense that like, if you can't pay back the one way, you got to pay back another way, but that it was so set in stone. He has to get your whole house. It seemed extreme. In 12 hours or whatever. Yeah, it's like in two days. Oh, yeah, that there's a time window on it. And like, it's immediate. Like the cop walks up to your house and guess what? Not your house anymore. Sorry. <laughs> but Timmy puts the 10K, 10K connection together. And the next morning he's he decides he's going to go find the hoodoo. He's going to take a picture of it. And that's he's going to save the farm because he was the one after all that let the turkeys free so it's it's on him but one thing i liked is annie catches up with him and so they're going to be wandering the woods together uh, her kind of tagging along as he tries to do this and she just like points out point blank how stupid this is as an idea for so many reasons and i appreciated this because i was thinking this is a really stupid idea too i mean for one there's no reason to think the howling hoodoo is real i guess timmy believes in his heart of hearts that it is because his crazy great uncle did but also, like, it's just a ad from a who-knows-how-old tabloid magazine. Like, how is this a viable plan to raise $10,000 in two days? That is a good point. I mean, promotions expire. Yeah. And also, like, I feel like there would be some sort of delivery time. It's not like... They don't even have email. So what are you going to Go to some place that has internet and email it in and hope they wire you the $10,000 in a couple hours. That just seems implausible. Timmy really needed to think out this plan a little bit more. 
But as they're wandering the woods, they bump into really the only Muppet puppet creatures in this whole film. It's these four little rodent like things. They're maybe two feet tall. I actually kind of like these guys, but it was a little disappointing. They were the only ones, but they're given the names, which are the nonsense words that had been written in the notebook. That's squonk, burble, zorp, and thring. And I did not like their names, but I did like these guys. What did you think of these these puppets? Yeah, so like in the Pokemon anime, they say what they're named. Like the sound that they make is what they go by. So the one named Burble is always going, Burble, Burble. Right. And there's something with it where it's like related to how the whole weapon thing he found was a kitar and makes tones. It's like there's some musical element to it, too. Like they say it at a certain tone or they can sing it, too, or something. I didn't quite follow that. Oh, yeah. They keep calling them musical monsters. And actually, the original name of Jim Henson's concept, I guess, was the musical monsters of Turkey Hollow. I didn't really notice them making any music. The most musical thing is this instrument thing that they use to communicate with them. But even that, I don't know, I think stretches the definition of music. It's more like the the thing in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where they, you know, are communicating back and forth with the ba 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 ba. But it's not even as musical as that. It's just like noises. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with all that for sure. And so what these things look like, it's kind of like a combination between like a monkey and an eagle. Like they're they're furry and squat, kind of like goblin size. But then they have like bird facial features, like kind of beaky noses. And they all look somewhat similar. They're each a little bit distinct. Like one has a big mouthful of teeth that it like stretches its face really wide like a mushroom almost like a mushroom with teeth i'm just kind of rambling now they're they're weird looking but they're also all covered with this monotone brown fur so they're not they don't stand out that much they're kind of like little weird bigfoot birds i think that's a good summary little weird bigfoot birds it's also a possible episode title there so we're gonna spend much of the second half of this movie with Squonk, Burble, Zorp, and Thring. Man, I feel so ridiculous saying those words out loud. <laughs> if you watch this movie, you'll hear them a bunch. <laughs> Timmy's able to, like, immediately communicate with them. And he, like, talks them into going to find the hoodoo. They're a little scared about it. But, he's like, oh, the, the other monsters, they'll lead me to the hoodoo. And so they go stomping off with the with Squonk, Burble, Zorp, and Thring. I, maybe if I say it faster, the names, like, it'll just roll off the tongue a little bit easier. Just get it over with. Yeah. Back at Cly's farm, though, Ron, the dad, and Cly have, have finally realized that Annie and Timmy are not in the house. They, they've they gone missing. And they start trailing them in the woods because the sheriff says, oh, the kids are in danger because the hoodoo is real. And this is enough, I guess, to convince the dad and Cly to go find them here in the woods. Um, shortly after they enter the woods, they're like, well, we're in this huge giant woods and we don't know where the kids are. Like, how are we going to find them? And Aunt Clyde, this is Mary Steenberg, and she starts talking about how we must trust in the mystical power of the forest where my husband's ghost is. 
and like I don't even know what she does. She like makes a, a musical noise like bopping on something. Yeah, she starts like drumming on this little piece of xylophone or something. And the little tendrils of this what what are those trees? It's like a mangrove or a Yeah, yeah. A banyan tree. And all the little tendrils start like dancing around. Right. And the dad is like, well, I learned about this in National Geographic. It just doesn't mean there's a spirit. And I got to agree with him that like this was not enough to convince me that there was something supernatural. Although I guess this was almost like a puppet like effect. It was pretty cool the way that they kind of moved. Yeah, it was pretty weird to me. I don't think I've read about this in National Geographic. Maybe it's not magic, but it's like Aunt Cly knows a little more than she's letting on. Yeah, I suppose. Um, another thing we learn around this point is that the, all of the one the the 175 MacGuffin turkeys, they've reappeared. They're back at Sump's farm, and because they've reappeared, I guess now we don't have to worry about it. Except, of course, Sump is like, "Well, oh, I want to get that farm. We got to go hide those 175 turkeys that came back. So take them to the facility." That's what he tells his minions. And so this quote-unquote facility is going to be a key setting in the second half of this film here. Uh, because just then, Timmy and Annie find what they momentarily believe to be the hoodoo. But it turns out it's like a big scarecrow-type thing, perhaps on some sort of motion detection that kind of swings at you. And I guess this is the thing that has been scaring the other little monsters, Squonk, Burble, Zorp, and Thring. But they realize, oh, it's not a real hoodoo. It's just a fake. And what is it guarding? It's a guarding a big facility. Hey, I wonder if that's the facility that was mentioned a scene ago. Turns out it is indeed the same place. I'm going to interject to say, I thought having the turkeys come back was a questionable decision, story-wise. <laughs> I mean, I guess it builds the climax by having everybody convene at this facility, but... I mean, you made a big point that the turkeys being gone creates this debt. And then all of a sudden they just come back, deus ex machina. And it's like, well, what if you just didn't have this? And I mean, the conflict would still exist. I don't know. I guess they they had to do something. That's interesting. There is an in-universe explanation given that kind of leads to the conclusion here, which we'll get to in a minute. But I... Now that you're talking about it, I think I agree with you that it's kind of dumb that they just all come back. Like We don't even really see them. They're just like, oh, they came back. Yeah, just, yeah, the farmhands just say they came back. Right. It's kind of goofy. Since Sump's minions are going to hide these turkeys at the quote-unquote facility, and that's just when Timmy and Annie happen to arrive, the minions find them there, and... In addition to locking the turkeys in there, they lock the kids in there, too. So the kids are now stuck in this big building. And while they're locked in this big building, Timmy and Annie, the two kids, are kind of fearing their death. And they begin confessing to each other the various sins that they have committed at the expense of each other over the years. It's like basic kids movie fodder. Like, I read your diary. I stole your Halloween candy. But I got to admit, I kind of like this scene. I think it was the most acting we got out of Timmy. And it made me realize that 
the the actress who plays Annie. I had to look her up. She's been on like teen dramas and stuff before, so she she can do at least a little bit of acting. And it made me at least feel like these were characters that I weren't just spouting lines in an adventure film, but actually felt at least a little bit like real people characters to me. So I don't know. I, I like this little bit of of humanity here late in the film. Yeah, I'll say like we don't see as much of the puppets as you might think. A lot of this movie is humans and turkeys. Right. Yeah. So it's like, if you, if you like the humans and the turkeys, it's going to raise the movie for you. But if you are expecting a lot of puppets, tone your expectations back. I think that's a good summary of level setting the expectations. I mean, if you're going to put Jim Henson's at the top of your poster, and then you have about 12 total minutes of puppets on screen, the whole movie. I think it's going to leave some people disappointed. I take it that you might be among those bunch. <laughs> we'll see when we decide whether it's good. <laughs> so something I think that might have been mentioned earlier in the movie, I couldn't remember because I, as mentioned, I watched this over a couple of nights Annie's like allergic to turkeys or she's allergic to feathers or something like that. And so Timmy and Annie locked in this building and they wake up the next morning and Annie is like gasping for breath and saying she can't breathe. Uh, so I guess they like Timmy starts freaking out and like banging the door and help me. And this just so happens to be, I guess Ron and Cly have now been like wandering for 24 hours looking for these two kids because they hear them and they're like, Oh, Let's go save them. Let's go get them. But of course, they're locked in. So how are they going to get in to save the two kids? Well, out come our buddies, Squonk, Burble, Zorp, and Thring. And Squonk, Burble, Zorp, and Thring, one thing we learned about them is that they eat rocks, I guess. That's just, it's like a, a character trait for these monsters is they eat rocks doesn't make any sense to me. There are no things on Earth that, like, digest rocks for nutrients. I mean, some animals have rocks in their stomachs to aid in digestion, but the it's not like you eat rock, like, that's a part of your diet. I mean, I guess we put salt on our food, which is like a ground-up rock, but I was wondering, what was the biological explanation behind Squonk, Burple, Zorp, and Thring having to eat rocks here? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's a common fantasy trope that your weird creature eat something weird like the iron giant has to have metal to eat that's true like the gorons in ocarina of time they eat rocks alf eats cats it's not unprecedented so squonk burble zorp and thring the more i say it the more i'm kind of into the names it's it's growing on me it's like it's building the muscle memory it's becoming a part of my my tongue's muscle memory saying these names it has a cadence yeah that's always the order that they say it in so so they're eaten through the base of this farm building and eventually indeed they're able to free Timmy and Annie. But this is just when Sump and his minions, or I guess it's just the minions, they arrive with their, their genius plan on how they're going to deal with these kids. And this was some movie logic for me here for sure. Their idea is they have these special turkey prods that have, and I quote, half a million volts. I'm not an electrician. I think you are, Brian. That does not sound like a realistic number to me. Are there any cattle prods that have half a million volts? I don't know. It sounds a little extreme, but, you know, they'll say it's the current that'll kill you. Okay. So not necessarily the volts and also where it passes through you. But yeah, that sounds high. 
And their theory is that that's enough voltage to induce memory loss when you are shocked. Inducing amnesia is not a known side effect of electrocution. Again, I would lean on your expertise on this one, but that is my guess. I mean, you could just kill them with it, I guess. <laughs> I mean, or if it doesn't do that, you could shoot them or something. It's like <laughs> a lot of variables could happen. I don't know this for sure, but I I would bet money that Sump owns a gun. And like, if he really wanted to take care of this, I, maybe this is just like to keep it G-rated. It's like, uh, don't go kill the kids. Let's go zap them. It's like in Pokemon, they faint. They don't die. And in Avatar The Last Bender, the queen has fallen. She hasn't been suffocated by an airbender who drew the oxygen out of her lungs. She has fallen. So did Jet just, just die? Yeah. It was really unclear. So that now we have the, the climactic chase scene. The guys with the volts are chasing down the, the kids who are freed and also the, the dad and the great aunt are there too. And just when they're cornered, we hear a great big thumping coming from the woods. Oh, oh what, what could it be? It's the real hoodoo. And the minions turn around and they do indeed see a large creature, which appears to be the hoodoo. And I guess in their like panic accidentally zap each other and so they're like writhing on the ground accidentally shocking each other like probably doing serious bodily damage if there's half a million volts in these things but it turns out the hoodoo is not the hoodoo it's in fact our buddies squonk burble zorp and thring who have come together voltron style to pose as this imposing creature so for whatever it's worth I knew this was going to happen. As soon as the four creatures showed up, I said, oh, they're going to be the hoodoo all fused together. That's what the hoodoo's going to be. Oh, interesting. What made you think that? I knew this because that's what happens in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, the second film. They spend a lot of the movie traveling with these two little goblin-y Martian creatures. And then at the climax the two creatures fuse together into a bigger creature. Mm. And I don't know, this was just giving me that vibe. It's like, that's what the hoodoo is going to be. And then sure yeah. enough, that's what we get here at the climax. So is your take that the howling hoodoo of lore has always just been these four guys? Or was it like a one-time thing where they impersonated the hoodoo? Yeah, hard to say. I mean, was it the dummy that we've seen a couple times? Was that the hoodoo? But if that was the monster everybody was seeing, like, clearly there are other monsters out there because then what are the little guys? Interesting. Yeah. Well, and also that thing wouldn't have been the origin of the myth. I mean, I guess the myth could have been just a myth and they capitalized on it. But this scarecrow thing has a mask of a hoodoo. So, like, the concept of the hoodoo predates the scarecrow, presumably. Okay. Well, then I think, yes, it must have been the creatures in some, although they're, hmm, I'm not sure, because early on, they're afraid of the hoodoo when they hear about it. So it's like they hit on the idea to make it. So hard to say. Yeah. And the the sheriff believes in the hoodoo, but we learn that the hoodoo that he believes in actually is the scarecrow thing, not the four people together, I think, or at least I think that's suggested. Right. I don't know, but... Whatever the case, these these four dudes, uh, our pals Squonk, Burble, Zorp, and Thring, are able to rescue our heroes. 
and they make it home just in time to reveal Sump's treachery. Uh, turns out the turkeys are all back, and not just that, but Cly reveals that this facility, they're storing experimental super steroid turkey kibble that makes the turkeys grow to 30 pounds. That's how they're doing it. It's this illegal chemical injection type thing. It just looks like dog food. The the stuff like the little crunchy pellets that I used to feed my dog when I was a kid. But I wanted to know, what is it about this stuff? Does it taste like anything? Like what would it do to humans? What would happen if I ate this kibble? I wanted to know more about the kibble. (laughs) You're looking for some gains. You want to bulk up? Maybe. I don't know. What it made me think of was the movie Hot Tub Time Machine, where they have an illegal Russian energy drink, and that's what gets spilled into the hot tub and makes it a time machine. Oh, that's right, yeah. Because these barrels of turkey feed have all these Cyrillic letters covering them. It made me think of my friend in college who went through a phase where he was going to do some intensive weightlifting, and he ordered some muscle supplements online and he said he started taking it and his muscles grew really quickly but he said within an hour after him having the supplement i think it was like a powdered type drink like a a protein shake but something that claimed to have a special ingredient x in it and whatever a special ingredient x was probably a steroid but it a made him actually get the gains real fast but also he would start shaking within an hour of having it just, you know, vibrating, shaking uncontrollably. And he decided after a week or two of that, despite the gains, that he probably was going to stop taking whatever that was. Wow. Yeah, these are the Ivan Dragos of turkeys, apparently. Yeah. So then we get the denouement, the, the happily ever after. Bad guy, Farmer Sump, gets arrested but only after, I guess, he has another encounter with the monsters and he's scared, thinking they're the hoodoo again or something. The sheriff comes to, I guess, tell Cly that he's helped resolve everything. And this is where we see Thanksgiving dinner. The sheriff basically invites himself in. Yeah, it was weird because narrator Ludacris made it sound like he was invited to dinner. But then he isn't, it seems like, and he invites himself, so... I think that was a point they could have polished a little bit. Just have him be invited to the dinner already. Uh, yeah, because Great Aunt Cly is kind of coy. And then we get the reveal. The monsters are joining for their, their vegan Thanksgiving dinner here at the end, which does include beets. And then there's a mention again of her deceased husband, her late husband, Ned. And we get a real quick flash of Grunkle Ned in a photo frame. And I was pretty sure it was the first time we had seen him all movie. And he's this bearded guy. And it made me wonder, like this would be a perfect place for an Easter egg. Like Grunkle Ned was actually played by Jim Henson or something like that. Did you recognize this? Did you get to to zoom in on this one? I wasn't sure. I was wondering the same thing if that was actually Jim Henson, but I'm not sure. I wonder if we can get an answer to that. Maybe the director or something like that. I don't know. Maybe we can call up the guy who played Timmy, see what he's up to these days, if he has any knowledge on that. Oh, it was the director. Kirk Thatcher as Uncle Ned, photo uncredited. Mmm, okay. Was that Wikipedia? It is the Muppet Wiki, actually. (laughs) Muppet Wiki. 
It's good. And that ends Turkey Hollow from 2015. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't think either of us are arguing it's a masterpiece here. No, but what's what are some things that you liked? So I did not hate the script. I, I thought it had some good moments of setup and payoff. And like I could tell you one or two things about all of the characters by the end of the film, which is with the possible exception of Timmy. Like at least the characters had basic enough traits that I could follow them and their motivations and their behaviors a little bit. So that's not always a given in TV movies with families, but okay. Um, I also thought the movie overall looked pretty good. It definitely has cheapness to it, but in terms of like the color and the cinematography, especially when they're out in the woods uh, during the day, night cinematography is hard and most TV movies do not look good when they're shooting night scenes or really any cheap movie, TV movie or otherwise. That was something I really complained about in the Cirque du Freak episode is the night scenes looked horrible. The night scenes here don't look great, but during the day it actually looks quite good. It's kind of like not a harsh green. It's like a mellow grayish autumnal green. Um, The kids are like wearing kind of bright colors. The boys wearing red, the girls wearing blue and the, there's yeah like a kind of a grayish hazy green um whenever they're in the woods which i kind of liked spending time here i thought that looked pretty good that was another positive for me yeah i mean i really bought that it was the pacific northwest i think the credit said it was filmed in british columbia so still the pacific northwest Mm -hmm. further north than the u.s goes right i mentioned i liked the the villain i thought he was he was good hammy fun and uh Ludacris is pretty charming. I don't know if they needed the narrator character, but I think the movie was not worse off for having him there because he's kind of he's just got a fun way of talking. He's engaging. Yeah, he he like barely edges into my positive things. He was funny and they kind of have an interesting narrator angle where it's like he's discovering a lot of the stuff as the movie goes along. So he's he's like reporting it secondhand as he's watching it. He's like, and then Tim and Annie died. Oh, does that cue card say survived? Well, I guess we'll see when we go back to Turkey Hollow. Yeah. And I think at one point he interviews one of the squonk burbles, Zorper Thring. It's like a joke where he's sitting down asking him questions and the monster just says their name and they act like it's a real interview, like a little, almost like a mini sketch type thing there. So, yeah, no, it was, it was kind of fun having him around. We didn't mention him at all in the recap, but he's a pretty constant presence because in general, he's there like doing the either lead in or lead out from a commercial. So we see him a half dozen times. Yeah. So this is a TV movie. So it's got the commercial fade to blacks. Right. And the thing where it's if you watch it continuously, it's like they say the dramatic line and then it fades to black and then it unfades to black. And then they say the dramatic line again. That always (laughs) makes me laugh when you watch TV movies. Now you will die. And now you will die. Ah, dad, help me. Something like that. (laughs) And I mean, another good thing is the puppets. When we see them. Yeah, that's I mean, the Henson Studios ongoing claim to fame is they're going to have some kind of puppets and they're going to put care into assembling them and operating them. And yeah, they're good. Uh, again, I mean, there's not a big spread 
The creatures are cool. I mean, they look like little woodland creatures. Little green ghouls, buddy. <laughs> but um, they're not always there. There's not a ton of them, but hey, we get the Henson creature effects. And I, I don't I mean, I haven't seen too much Henson stuff, but I was just impressed. Like the, the range of motion is not just your basic stick a hand in a thing and move the hand around. There's like blinking eyes. And I was actually wondering if it was all practical or if there was any CGI enhancing some of the expressiveness in the face. But if it's all like remote controlled or whatever, it's pretty impressive. It looks really good. Yeah, I agree. And I also came around quite a bit on the actress who plays Annie. Uh, She is annoying, but I ended up liking the actress a little bit. So that is pretty close to my list of good things about this movie. Um, It's also mercifully short. It's only like 86 minutes or something like although it takes like 45 minutes before the action actually starts happening like i don't think we see a puppet until 35 minutes in or something like that yeah it felt a bit slow at times to me but it was all right did you have any other good things we didn't mention here or did you have some not so good things you wanted to mention well i mentioned it already i did like the gibberator prop this Mm -hmm. cool instrument thing i would like to mess around with it and see what kinds of sounds it actually made um but yeah Past that, I think I'm ready to talk about some not so good things. And having the turkeys around. I liked having the turkeys around. Oh, yeah, real turkeys. You get some like cool shots zoomed in, like to kind of as like a scary, like a Dutch angle, like a scary zoom in on a, a turkey when it's kind of surprising that they're there. But yeah. All right. What are, what are some not so good things, Brian, about Turkey Hollow? Just all throughout it, it has kind of a low budget fake feel. Not to the woods. The woods are real, but. I don't know. I mean, Steenbergen is phoning it in. Sometimes it felt like the dad was phoning it in. I agree with that, too. The son was obnoxious at times. Like, he grew into the role, maybe, as the movie went along. But there was definitely some, like, wooden shots of him just kind of staring off into space. How many Jansons is he at? What percent of a Jansen? So Jansen is a little more smarmy than this kid is. This kid was just kind of a nothing for a lot of it. Um, I mean, the the dictionary thing was dorky, but it, he was just kind of a non-entity to me. He wasn't Dipper. Okay. Yeah. What did you think? Good... I was going to say maybe two thirds of a Jansen. Okay. Um, because you're right. He's not as like annoying, but just like Jansen Panettiere made Last Day of Summer worse. I think he makes the movie worse by being what he is. So I wonder what he's he's done since then. I got to look this up here. Yeah, it just the whole thing to me feels kind of ghoulish. It's like they took Jim Henson's corpse and they're puppeting it around to give this thing legitimacy. But, you know, they, they took some half-baked idea and threw some name recognizable actors into it and gave him a paycheck and put it on TV. And and here it is. Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow. That's interesting. The Jim Henson connection to me uh, didn't bother me as much. Um, It's like, I I don't know. I don't really hold it against them trying to find some hook for the audience, but uh, yeah, you're right. It definitely is not a proper Henson project. There's no, there's no recognizable Jim Henson here other than the fact that there happened to be some puppets involved. It looks like the guy who played Timmy, though, he was the co-star of 
the movie on Disney Plus from last year, Stargirl, which was based off of a young adult book that I read a few, several years ago now. So he's done other stuff too, it looks like. That's good. It's good to see people getting work. Yeah, agreed. But we hit most of my complaints. Some of them petty, some of them kind of high level. The script isn't horrible, but there's like clunky things in the plot that needed to be smoothed over and not in a charming way like I found it for, what was the name of the RV movie? Uh, Taurus Trap. This actually would have been a better called Taurus Trapped than Taurus <laughs> Trap was. There was actually a Taurus Trap in this one. Yeah, that's a good point. But, okay. Yeah, a little bit of a landed with a thud for us. That's all right. Not every movie is going to be Repo Man for us. No. So are you ready to put a rating on it? I am. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So why, why don't you go first, Brian? Is Turkey Ho- sorry, is Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow 2015 good? And does putting Jim Henson's on the front of it change your rating at all? Oh, it tr- definitely drags it down. Uh, I'm going to give this one a two out of eight, which is a not good, in fact. And it's like right at the cusp of one and two for me. When I watched Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings, and I, I know I reference past episodes too much, but uh, long-term listeners will understand. But I felt in that one like some of the people involved were passionate. And here, I I don't know. Maybe the puppet designers were passionate. It's a more competent film, but... I, I I don't know. I didn't feel that energy. It just feels like a cash grab to me. So it, it lands at a two. I, I found in this, I don't know if you could call it a second season or whatever, but like the last 25 episodes, I've definitely come to a better understanding of what's a one, what's a two, what's a three for me, when we, we really didn't have that many of those in our first handful episodes. Yeah, it'll be interesting to look. I, I suspect you're right that the average rating of movies we've seen from episode 50 onwards, I'm guessing we'll have a lower average than uh, either episodes 1 to 25 or episodes 26 to 50. So it'll be interesting to see. But yeah, I was also not wild about this film. Uh, I wasn't quite as down on it as you. I think I had a little bit more fun with it. And maybe that was just I had less of a negative reaction to the Jim Henson connection. It certainly is a quickie. You know, Steenbergen is where you can really see that there is a half acidness to this whole effort. But as far as competence, it's a light year beyond uh, Max Magician as far as I'm concerned. You're right that it doesn't have the same uh, kind of amateur joy of the sheer novelty of creation associated with it. There is something kind of uninspired about it. But, you know, we get to spend time in the woods. I I like the villain. The puppets are fun when they're on screen. The story's got some road bumps, but it hits most of its points at a reasonable cadence. For me, this is a low three. Not, not good. Uh, so I'm just a little bit higher on it than you are. So, Yeah, I can respect that. That is Turkey Hollow 2015. For what it's worth, it is a Thanksgiving movie. Something which are in vanishingly short supply. That's a good point. I mentioned that in our outro last episode, and I feel that should be mentioned now. I don't think I would have watched this movie specifically if not for the fact that there are not too many 
Thanksgiving movies of note. It's very odd. There's so many Christmas movies and so many Halloween movies, but Thanksgiving focused movies, there's not too many of them. And a lot of them tend to be like cheap family dramas. I thought this was kind of cool that it was like a family fantasy adventure that was Thanksgiving themed or, you know, I guess it's turkey themed and it happens on Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I mean, you really think I'd give it higher marks because of the prominent featuring of the Pacific Northwest. So that is one thing that I like. Yeah. But uh, I'll say after we watched this one on Thanksgiving, we put on a documentary next from 2021 called Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street. And it was about the creation and development of the early seasons of Sesame Street. And I watched that to kind of restore my faith in Jim Henson's legacy. And I would give that documentary an eight. So wow. check, check that one out. It, it was really well done. Uh, I mean, it really only covers like the early seasons. So if you are more familiar with later stuff, like I don't think Elmo is in it at all. So there's going to be things you might be familiar with that are uh, are left out. But it's it's about the coming together and the creation. And there's a lot of footage of early Muppet stuff from Hanson. Uh, that's cool. Yeah. My related viewing was not actually related to this itself, but I tried to find at least one other Thanksgiving movie to watch. And I watched Pieces of April, which is a Katie Holmes starring drama from like 2003 or something like that. And that was a much better movie. I got a lot more out of that one. It made me choke up multiple times and without being too heavy. So uh, I think if I'm going to be rewatching something from this year that I watched uh, in future Thanksgivings, it would not be Turkey Hollow. It would be Pieces of April, or perhaps I would go back to Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Wow, it's called Pieces of April, but it's about November. Way to bury the lead. <laughs> That's a good point. I wondered why they went with that. It's like a, ironic or something. But Anyways, Brian, that brings things over to you. What are we going to be watching for next week? Well, December is knocking at the door now, so it's Christmas season. I'm sure you've seen houses in your neighborhood already got the lights up day after Thanksgiving. And so we're uh, going to have some Yuletide films. Dan actually recommended what I'm going to pick today. He said, you know, we watched a bunch of Christmas Carol adaptations last year. All of them were musicals. So what if we did one where it's all straight dramas? Just... No singing and dancing in these Christmas Carol adaptations. And wouldn't you know it, there's plenty left to go around. So I actually haven't fully decided on what four we're going to have yet. But that seems like the magic number. So uh, expect a bumper crop of additional Scrooge coverage. That's cool, yeah. No, I'm I'm psyched about this. Um, I have a couple of December-themed movies in the pipeline to pick as well. But I'm glad that we're going to get some more christmas carol coverage because i ha having watched a few of them last year I'm, I'm excited to watch a few more of them so of course last december i also threw um kate and leopold into the mix so for whatever reason i feel like every week in october has to be an october appropriate movie but i'm not as married to the christmas theming in december but maybe i will have two christmas picks we'll see maybe you just like halloween more than christmas i might i might we'll see but thank you for listening listeners to our Turkey Hollow episode, and I do hope you join us for that next time, too. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Turkey Hollow or any film we've previously discussed. 
Each week, we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your movie to thegoodsfilmpodcast.gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast.gmail.com. Brian, I've kept this segment around in hopes that we would start getting these emails. It hasn't happened yet, but listeners, if you're out there, send us your reviews of, of anything that we've watched. We'd love to, to hear from y'all. Yeah, just sound off however you want. Tell us what you like, movies you'd like to hear us talk about. If you, you know, are a crazed fan and you want our autographs, anything, just give us some feedback. We're the lonely lighthouse keepers shining our beacon into the void. Absolutely. Yeah, listeners, thank you for joining us. And, uh, you know, hopefully then whatever we watch next will be a little more good in line with our podcast title, The Goods. But thank you for joining us and have a good evening. Bye, Brian. See you guys.